Well, as we continue our summer series called Voices, I'm particularly excited to invite to our platform this morning's speaker. John Ames is the director of the Send Relief Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And you should know, after many years of prayerful intercession, um, the Send Relief Ministry was funded and established by the National Send Relief uh, arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the hope is, and I think John might even touch on this, but the hope is not just to do compassion ministry, but to actually stimulate, resource, and link with what local churches are trying to do. And so that is um, the heartbeat, I think, of Redemption Hill Church. And so uh, John is amongst friends uh, who share that vision. Now, John doesn't know this, but a couple of years ago, I was attending an all-day Send Boston gathering that was specifically for pastors and ministry leaders. And I can tell you it at 61 years of age, I've been to lots of all-day conferences. And yes, I was that guy in my 20s and 30s that would have this massive amount of paper and I would like almost transcribe everything that was said during the conference. And then I would think I'd go home and peel my brain and dump it in and become a much better leader. I've changed over the years, John, and my prayer now when I go to them is, Lord, would you give me one nugget that when I'm done can impact my life going forward? And this particular all-day conference in the middle of lots of great presentations and speakers, John was sharing. I've never told you this story, right? And I remember to this day, he was talking about how churches need to stimulate compassion within their communities, and he said a very simple phrase, take the photo. Now, you're nodding. Take the photo. As a pastor, you guys would know this because we're family. I spend a lot of time thinking about planning and trying to figure out how to execute compassion in our, in our city. And oftentimes, in order to share that more broadly, I'd whip out my phone and I'd do a little selfie with what's going on in the background. And I was just convicted in that moment. There's nothing wrong with that. My motivation was pure. But John's encouragement was take the photo of others um, in the act of compassion so that others will be encouraged to follow in a like way. And so several years later, John, that still sticks with me to this day. And my prayer for us this morning, if you come here, I'm going to pray for you, is that every person here will have a nugget spoken through John as he breaks the word for us that will echo in your life for years to come. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brother. Um, open our hearts. Change our lives. Don't let us leave today without hearing from you through your chosen vessel, John. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. John, you're among friends. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Uh, Redemption Hill, it is a joy to be here with you guys today. Uh, I look at you and I just, I smile because you are an answer to prayer. And you need to know that, you need to know that, that several people for generations have been praying for a church like yours right here. And so, uh, so thank you for being faithful. Thank you for investing in this community and, and staying true to this church. Um, God smiles upon you uh, as you do that. He is delighted in you. And you have tremendous leaders here at your church. Uh, wouldn't you say that's true? Don't you guys have great leaders here? Yeah, you can give the Lord some praise for that. And in addition to great leaders, I know that God has given each of you gifts so that you might be able to build up this local body and extend the kingdom. And so we can praise God for all the gifts that he's given our ch this church, right? Amen? Go ahead and praise God for the gifts. Not just the leaders, all of you. 
And so I have, I have the tremendous privilege for uh, today of, of bringing the word to you. And I'm going to lower this just a little bit. Bringing the, uh, the word to you today. And uh, before we do that, I just want to tell you a little bit about uh, the Send Relief Center. You know, John already mentioned it a little bit. Um, so uh, the Send Relief Center was started in September. And uh, we have a simple goal. The simple goal is this, that we want to make sure that all of our churches don't forget about the poor and the vulnerable in their communities. We want to make sure that in all the different activity that we're doing, all the good missions work and all the good ministry and, and all the great celebration times that we have when we come together for worship, that we don't forget about those who are oftentimes neglected. Amen? And so we try to mobilize different churches in different ways based on what their communities are saying to the glory of God so that we might be able to reach into our communities and see them strengthened. And if you want to find out more about the Send Relief Center, well, you have a Send Relief, uh, a couple Send Reliefers here. You've got Mason and Tyler Donaldson, uh, and they can tell you a lot more about how to get involved and a lot more about what we're doing. And so make sure you grab them if you have questions. Let me take a moment right now and just say a word of prayer over our message. Would you bow your heads with me as we approach the Lord in prayer? Father, it's our honor to meet with you this morning. God, we thank you that you, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, have made a way for us to have access to you. God, we don't discount that privilege for a moment. And so we thank you, God, that we get to meet with you today. God, we thank you that we get to open up your word today. That you are a God who doesn't want to stay hidden in the shadows or, or, or tucked away on his throne, but you are a God who wants us to know him. And so, God, thank you for revealing who you are through your word. I pray today, God, that as we approach the word, we would be attentive. God, give us focus. Give us ears to hear. Pray all this in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, can I take you back, Redemption Hill, uh, just back into time for a moment. How many of you guys remember this amazing movie that came out called The Matrix? Anybody remember The Matrix? Well, The Matrix for me was one of these mind-bending uh, movies. It was one of these that radically kind of transformed my perspective uh, on reality and what is true. Remember throughout the movie, uh, it kind of kept uh, showing us, uh, this, presenting us this, this question. Is what you see, is what you feel, is what you experience, is all of it true? Or is it just kind of a facade? Is there something else behind it? Now, if you haven't seen The Matrix because you're from a different generation, this is the concept. It's like you were born with a VR headset on. And then someone told you, you've got a VR headset on. There's more to life than what you're seeing. And so The Matrix kind of presents that idea, presents um, that visual. And so you may remember in the movie, the movie is pretty much one chase scene after another, right? You've got these agents who are chasing after this main character named Neo. Because it's suspected that Neo might be the chosen one. He might be the one who's going to set everybody free, and they might actually be able to see what is actually true. And these agents, especially Agent Smith, they don't want everybody to know that. And so they chase him, and they fight him, and he's constantly dodging conflict the entire movie. And as we get to the closing scene, the end of that first movie, sorry, it's a spoiler alert, but it's an old movie, so I can do it. But as we get to the closing scene, you may remember Neo is on the run. He's being chased down by these agents, and miraculously, he comes back to life after being brutally attacked. And suddenly, he realizes with confidence that he is, in fact, the chosen one. And he stands back up, and he turns to the agents, and the agents are shocked because he just came back to life. And the agents put up their guns, and they fire a ton of bullets at him. 
And all of a sudden, in that moment, what does Neo do? But he extends his hands, and he says one word, no. And the bullets freeze. It's like slow motion. They all freeze, and then he just plucks them out of the air, and then they all fall down to the ground. And, and Agent Smith is, like, just blown away by what just happened, and, and he's angry. And so he runs at Neo to make one last attempt to, to take care of the, the, cho- the clearly the chosen one. But instead of being intimidated by this agent who's coming at him, Neo just fights back almost again like it's in slow motion. And at one point, he puts his right arm behind, and he fights him with one arm the whole time. And then with a Bruce Lee kick, he kicks Agent Smith down the hallway. And all of a sudden, it is so clear, he is truly the chosen one who is greater and stronger than everything else in the real world and in the more mystical matrix. Neo is operating on a different level. He's stronger and greater than everything that comes against him. You know, church, if we're honest, all of us face so many different trials every day that sometimes feel like bullets. All of us face so many different attacks every day that sometimes feel like someone's chasing us down and throwing punches and kicks at us. And the truth is that all of us, if we're honest, we long to be greater and stronger than anything that comes against us. But if we're also honest, if we've been around the block enough, we realize that we are not stronger or greater than all that comes against us. Amen? If we want to see victory in our lives, if we want to see deliverance in our lives, we need to do it through the power of someone else, someone who is greater, who is stronger, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Can we give the Lord some praise for Jesus? Amen. We can't fight our battles alone and in our own strength. We need him. And, you know, as we stop and think about this, I want to turn us to a passage of Scripture that's going to reinforce this idea. And we're going to find as we look at this passage that Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 35. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. It'll also be up here for you on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took them, took him with, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were all filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and, and in the country. And people came to see what, see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had, who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from this region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now our, our passage presents an, an outstanding story told in two parts. And oftentimes you hear two different messages on this passage. You hear one message on the storm and the Sea of Galilee and then one message on the Gerasian demoniac. But I think today if we look at them together, we might find a very helpful truth right in the middle. And it all begins, right, when Jesus initiates and says to his disciples in verse 35, let us go across to the other side. And then it all ends as they return back to the shores from where they departed in chapter 5, verse 21, and they get back from the other side. And so we see even in the text that there are bookmarks here, bookends for us, telling us this is one story, there's two important parts. Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of Mark, it is an amazing story. In fact, oftentimes when I, when I talk to somebody who's just become a Christian, I always say, read the Gospel of Mark. It is a, it is a tremendous Gospel account. Now, yeah, let me catch you up a little bit on the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is interested in, in really one main thing, and that's that it wants to introduce you and me to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It wants to introduce us to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so as we go throughout the first three and a half chapters of the book of Mark, we find that Jesus has been fulfilling pro prophecies. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been calling his disciples to follow him. His family members have been rejecting him, telling him, you've you got to tone this down, man. You're not God, right? And all of that has been happening, and it's been happening at a rapid and exciting pace. And as the momentum has been building so far in the book of Mark, we see this question presented over and over again, and that's this question right here, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, to answer that question, Jesus offers parables, and so that's what he's done kind of in the lead up to this, and so he's been teaching crowds and, and talking in parables for a while, and so many people have been coming to him that he actually had to get out on a boat, and the boat had to be pushed out into the water so that the crowds couldn't press in upon him, and so that's where he is, exhausted, 
his disciples are exhausted, and they're on this boat, and they're going to take this journey. But this isn't just a trip out on a boat. Maybe some of you have gone to the lake for summer vacations. Maybe some of you have taken a boat out on the wa- on, off the coast and, and enjoyed just a nice evening boat ride. That's not what this is. Jesus had a plan. The plan was to get to the other side. The plan was what was going to happen along the journey. And again, as we look at this passage today, we are going to see that Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. He's greater than everything. Now, when we say everything, what do we mean? Well, let's look at this story in two parts. Let's look at the first part. And as we look at the first part of the story, this is what it presents for you and for me. And that's this, that Jesus is God over the natural world. Jesus is God over the natural world. Now, the wonderful way in which our scripture today does this is that it connects to two passages in the Old Testament. It connects us with two different instances in the Older Covenant. And the first one is the story of Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? How many people remember the story of Jonah? Let me catch you up a little bit in case you are not familiar with it. The story of Jonah is about a man who was called to be a prophet. He was a man who was called by God to go and preach repentance to his enemies. He was called basically to go and tell them, hey, ask for God's forgiveness. And Jonah didn't want to do that because Jonah wanted what so many of us want when we think about people who have harmed us. He wanted them to get what was theirs. He wanted them to get what was coming. And so Jonah refused God said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go this way to Nineveh and preach for and and call them to forgiveness. And Jonah said, nope, and he went this way to Tarshish, the complete opposite direction. He wanted to flee the call and the presence of God. And he didn't just want to, like, go from Medford down to Charlestown to flee it. He wanted to get as far away from the call and presence of God as he could. And so he went in the complete opposite direction, and he, and he was planning to not stop until he got to the place that people back then thought was the ends of the earth. Tarshish on the very edge of Spain was what people thought, this is it. That's where, that's where it drops off, right? Because people thought it was a flat earth, right? That's where it drops off. Kyrie Irving still thinks it's a flat earth. Any, okay, no basketball fans. All right, uh, Tanner, you'll appreciate that if you watch the, the live stream. Uh, okay, so in either case, uh, this is what, what, what Jonah's doing. He's running as far away as he can get from God. But what happens as he boards that boat to get that passage as far away as he can from Nineveh? A storm comes up, right? There's a mighty storm that comes up, and, and, and the ship is starting to break apart. And, and what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping, right? He's sleeping on a cushion down in the stern. He's asleep. He doesn't really care. He's not worried about it. And all the sailors rush down to Jonah, and they say, Jonah, don't you care? Call out to your God that we might find rescue. And Jonah kind of delays, but finally he explains to them, guys, this is because of me. I've been fleeing God. God sent this storm, and if you want it to stop, just throw me overboard. And the sailors go, Jonah, we're not murderers. We're not going to throw you overboard. But finally they decide, okay, we'll do it, and they toss them, right? And what happens in that moment? But God calms the storm, and it becomes still. Now, if you haven't read the rest of the story, you should, because Jonah then gets swallowed by a great big fish, 
And, and then after repentance, he gets spat up onto, onto dry land, and he goes, and he preaches repentance. And guess what? They actually do seek forgiveness from God, and they're restored. And the whole story ends with Jonah under a tree, bitter about it. He's mad that they actually got forgiveness. So it's a strange ending to the story, but very, very revealing about all of us in our hearts. And in fact, the whole story is a wonderful story of God's mercy. It's got the gospel woven throughout all of it. Now, why do I tell you all of this about Jonah? But because our passage today is connected directly to Jonah. You see, as we look at the story of Jonah and what we just read in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus, we can see so many amazing parallels that point to a very important message for you and for me today. Let's look at those parallels between the two. Mark chapter 4, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. We just said, Jonah chapter 1, verse 5. What was Jonah doing? He was fast asleep. And so Jesus and Jonah, right, they were both in the middle of the boat, and we know that at, and in, both, in both instances they had people, disciples or sailors, coming to them saying, don't you care, wake up, right? So that's a parallel in itself. Let's continue to look at the parallels. Jonah chapter 1, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging, or it became calm. Mark chapter 4, verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jonah chapter 1, verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Mark chapter 4, verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. Now this fear in this instance is different than the feeling that they had of being afraid during the storm. This is more of a, of a reverent awe. This is a, like kind of a, more of a, a worshipful attitude. This is a holy smokes what just happened moment that they're experiencing. And we know for the sailors, right, that this holy fear actually became all-out worship because what does it say that they did? But they offered sacrifices and they made vows to God. Now, all of this that is happening on the Sea of Galilee that evening is meant to make all those disciples there and you and me reading it now remember the story of Jonah so that we might stop and say, wait a second, this is happening just like then and, and the storm just got calmed and, and the wind ceased and the last time in the story of God that that happened, who did that? Who could do that? But God. And so if Jesus does it, what does that tell you about who Jesus is? But he's God, right? He must be God because only God can do that. And so as those disciples are sitting there, they should be as good Jewish boys stopping and thinking, I remember that this is just like the question that I'm asking, who then is this that even this, the wind and the waves obey him? The answer should be so simple. He must be God. Amen? Jesus is God, and he's greater and stronger than everything that comes against him. But this passage in Mark doesn't just have one Old Testament connection. It has a second one, and this second one is found in Psalm 107. 
And this takes us a little bit deeper so that we might understand that Jesus isn't just God, but he's also the chosen Messiah. He's also the anointed one. He's also the promised one. He is our Savior and Redeemer. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the true prophet, priest, and king of Israel. Amen? So let's look at Psalm 107. And again, when I was preparing for this message a while back, when I first preached this, I read through Psalm 107. I said, wow, this is amazing how closely connected this is to Mark chapter 4. Psalm 107, pick me up in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus was even on the scene, right, in his incarnate form. And so as the disciples are sitting here and watching what Jesus does, they should also be thinking of Psalm 107, that great Thanksgiving psalm with these messianic parts to it. And they should realize Jesus is God, the Messiah. Now Mark chapter 4, verse 39 says that Jesus does rebuke the winds and the waves. And so you've got the power of nature on display, and Jesus shows that he is God who reigns superior over the natural world. Amen? He is not just God, but he is control, in control of everything in the natural world. What are the things in your natural world today that you might be up against? What are the things that you face on a regular basis that you might be struggling with? Did you know that the Jesus you know is God who is greater and stronger than all of it? Amen? Amen. Now, our story doesn't stop there. This is why I want to include the next part, because Jesus isn't just God over the natural world, but the second part in the story tells us that he is also God over the supernatural world. Amen? How many people know that you and I don't just face battles that come from the natural world, but we also face them that come from the supernatural world? It's good to know that, God, that Jesus is God over both. Amen? Amen. Let's look at how Jesus is God over the supernatural world in this second part of the story. Now, again, remember, he's not just taking a good boat ride and trying to get some relaxation. There's a plan in mind. We're going to the other side. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So as soon as Jesus arrives, immediately, right away, someone is coming at him. And this person is coming at him with something very intense that's going on inside of him. In fact, if you were to look at the Greek and you were to see what exactly is it saying here, how is it explaining it, it is very clear. It's setting this up for a showdown. It literally says, out of the boat came Jesus, out of the tombs came the man. And so this is the part in a Western movie where you hear that little, like, whistle in the background. And, uh, and what's that little thing that brushes across in the middle? You've all seen those Western movies. That's what's going There's a showdown about to happen, right? And Jesus 
is, uh, is, is faced with this man who has an unclean spirit is the description. Now, an unclean spirit, I've got the, the Greek word up there for you if you want to look at it and write that, <laughs> try to write that down. Uh, it means foul. It means unholy. It means something is off with this guy. It means uh, something deep within the core of who he is is not right. You ever heard the expression, something just doesn't smell right? That's what's going on here in this interaction with Jesus. But it goes way beyond that there's just something off with this man. In fact, all the biblical references uh, using this type of language talk more of, less about a man who's weird and quirky and more about a man who's got something dark and evil inside. Say it another way. This is a man who's coming out of the tombs who is possessed with something demonic, and it is causing him to act diabolically. And, of course, the description supports this, right? If we look at verse 3, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this man, he lived in the tombs, which means he had been banished from the community, right? He was now an outsider, and his choice of home wasn't under a tree down by the water, but it was in a place where they kept the dead. And that should tell you that in, in a place like that where dead bodies were constantly being brought in, if he felt like that was a good, safe space for him to be in, that should tell you something about his spirit and about the darkness inside. But it wasn't just uh, the fact that he was in a tomb that is alarming and that shows you the degree of uncleanness, the degree of spiritual darkness here. But it was the fact that he was actually also in the region of the Gentiles where they raised pigs. Now, back then, pigs were, were considered to be filthy and they were forbidden. And you didn't, you didn't come close to a pig back in that time. You couldn't be in the presence of a pig. You couldn't touch a pig. You couldn't eat a pig. And uh, praise the Lord for the new covenant in Jesus. We can now eat bacon. Amen? Can we give the Lord some praise for that? I mean, we can praise God for Jesus and bacon. Amen? In that order, Jesus first. But this man was banished from his community, and he was in an unclean place, and there was a dark problem with him. There was such a dark problem with him that he was actually imprisoned, right? It said that they kept putting chains on him, but he had supernatural strength from the devil that caused him to be able to break free from the chains. He was tormented. He was at war with himself. This was a man who was an outcast, who was impure, who was imprisoned, and he was trying to destroy himself. Church, you need to know that about the devil, that that is what he wants to do to you. John 10.10 says that the, the thief comes to do what? To steal, kill, and destroy he is out for you. You know why? Because here's the devil's plan. Here's the little sneak peek at his plan that, that makes no sense to me. But here's his plan. I know that every single one of these humans, all of these believers especially, are made in the image of God. All humans are made in the image of God. Believers are, are witnesses, anointed with the presence of God. I know that all of them are made in the image of God. They're meant to be image bearers. And if I can just get them to destroy themselves, then maybe there'll be less image bearers, and maybe I can rob God of his glory just a little bit. Now, that is so foolish. No one can rob God of his glory. But you need to know the devil's trying that on you. He's trying that on you, and that's what he's done to this man with success. Again, our battle, church, what does it say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly 
places. And so this man represented darkness, uncleanliness to the highest degree, from his spirit to his residence. But not just from his spirit to his residence, but also in his man- there was a manifestation of the demonic, right? When Jesus approaches, which by the way, when Jesus is coming out of the boat, I want you to stop and think about those disciples for a moment. They've just pulled up on shore. They just came out of this crazy storm. They're probably still a little shaken. They get up on shore. They think we're going to finally be able to relax on the beach. It's going to be a good day with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, this man comes out of the tomb, clearly possessed. I guarantee you, as Jesus is going forward, they're running back to the boat. They are trying to push the boat out of the water. They're yelling, Jesus, let's get out of here. Come on, this is the worst place. They are probably petrified, right? But our Jesus is stepping into the darkness, which he always does to bring the light. And he always looks at all of us who have been, because of our sin, in places of uncleanliness and looks to heal us and make us right again. Amen? And so Jesus is driving towards this man. He falls down in, uh, before him. It's not in worship, but it's out of respect for who he is. And, and the demons start controlling his words, right? When Jesus asks him who he is, what does he do? But he starts off by, by addressing him in the singular, and then he quickly moves to the plural. Look, look, at, uh, look, at the, look at the text. It says, my name is Legion, for we are many. So there is a, a battle between this man and the demons going on. There is a manifestation of darkness. And it's not just a couple demons, right? What does it say? It says there's a legion there. How many is a legion? I didn't know. I had to go look it up. It's 5,600 men. 5,600 people. That's how many potentially demons were inside of him. Now, we don't know if that's exactly the amount, but we do know there were 2,000 pigs that ran out and were possessed by demons. So it was at least 2,000 that were in him. Jesus is set up with the most unclean, most spiritually dark uh, you know, opposition that he possibly can have here. And what does he do? But he shows that he's sovereign over it too. Not just over the winds and the waves, but over everything supernatural. Church, I don't know what you've been battling with, and some of you know the spiritual battle more than others, but you need to know that no matter what it is, your God, Jesus Christ, is greater and stronger than all of it. Amen? Amen. And this is an over-the-top type of situation, and we see Jesus commands the demons out of him. The townsfolk hear about it. They come back, and in verse 15 it says, And they saw the demon-possessed man who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. So this is showing you in the second part of the story, right, that Jesus is greater than the supernatural world, but that's not all it's showing you. Just like the first part, it's also showing you that Jesus is in fact God, right? To this point in the Gospel of Mark, nobody has been able to to, uh, respond to Jesus in the correct and appropriate way. No one has been able to address him for who he is. But all of a sudden, with this man possessed by demons, we see the first true claim, the first proper identification of who Jesus is. Look at verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? For the disciples who have been watching, this is twice now in a matter of hours. They have seen Jesus demonstrate power over the natural, the supernatural, but they have also seen he is clearly pointing to the fact that he is God. Whether it's by the voice 
of these de- uh, demons coming through this man or whether it's through all the connections between what he was able to do and the Old Testament stories that pointed to him. We see right here that they can no longer look at their rabbi and, and wonder, is he just a good teacher? Is he just a wise philosopher? Is he just a cool guy who's got a great following who can do some magic tricks? They can't say that anymore. They have to look at Jesus and recognize him for who he is. Jesus is God, the Messiah, who is greater than everything. Amen? Amen. Now, as we look at these two parts in the story, right wedged between the two, like a linchpin between a truck and a trailer, we find this question that Jesus asks. Mark chapter 4, verse 40. He said to them, why Are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? This fear is not the fear I talked about before. This is, they're petrified. This is what you have experienced in times of trial, what you know too well in times of attack. They're afraid. They're desperately afraid. And the question that Jesus asked them, Luke tells the same story in Luke chapter 8, verse 25, and adds some nuance so that we might understand exactly what it is that Jesus is asking here. Luke chapter 8, verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? Now, he is not saying, have you lost your faith? Because they don't have faith. They still do not know who he is. They still have not been able to properly identify Jesus as their Messiah, as God. So they've never had faith. They couldn't have lost it. What Mark and Luke are pointing to, they want us to understand that Jesus is saying, when he says, where is your faith, in whom is your faith? Or in what is your faith? Is your faith in your circumstance? Whether it's smooth sailing or whether it's great relational interactions with people that feel safe, whatever it might be, in whom is your faith in that moment? Where are you when that happens? There's a great Dutch painter named Rembrandt, and uh, he had this painting that used to hang at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. You can't see it anymore. Maybe some of you are familiar with the robbery that took place on a St. Patrick's Day a while back, but, um, but that, that painting is in the wind, uh, but this painting we still have images of, and it's a tremendous painting, so you Google it, look at it, um, but it's entitled Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and I think I got a picture of it right there. Um, you see that the boat is raised on an angle by the waves. And some of the disciples, they are they're wrestling with the sail, and others are pleading with Jesus to wake up. And then you see the, the contrast of the light and the dark that's meant to show you and me the tension between life and death in this moment. But if you look closely, right in the middle of the scene, there is one character who is grasping a rope and holding onto his hat, and he's staring out at the viewer. It's as though he's asking what about you? Now, it's been established that that character in the middle is a self-portrait of the artist himself. Like so many paintings, Rembrandt painted himself into the story. And it's not just his face. In fact, if you were to take a magnifying glass and you were to put it on the rudder of the ship, you would see that he etched his name into the rudder of the ship. And what does that tell you? But that what Rembrandt is doing here is he's not just asking you the question. He's asking himself the question. What about you? What about me? When the storms are raging in this life and you're afraid, where is your faith? In whom is your faith? We've all been in those situations, right? Those moments of trial 
when we're desperately afraid. And I can tell you, church, this last season has been very difficult for me. Over the past couple years, there have been moments where I have faced both uh, trials from the natural world and trials from the spiritual world. And I have found myself afraid. And in those moments, I've tried all the different things. In the stress and the anxiety of it all, I've, I've gotten the, the stress reliever books and done the crosswords and, 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 I've, and I've made sure that I've gone to the gym more to exercise more and, and I've made sure that I've watched my diet and I've made sure that I put myself in the right types of situations and I've disconnected from social media and I've made sure that I've, you fill in the blank. You know all the things we try to relieve our anxiety and our fear and all those things help a little bit, but ultimately all those things don't help all the way. Amen? The truth is, when we are afraid and when there are trials that happen, I found, and maybe you've found, that we need to turn to Jesus all the time. And it's only when we put our trust and our faith in Jesus that we find deliverance and true victory. Amen? It doesn't mean you don't do the other things. Go to the gym. Watch your diet. Take those supplements that are supposed to help keep you calm. But always turn to Jesus. You see, what we normally do, church, is we do one of two things. In those moments of fear, we try to control and we grab that rudder. We try to control our lives. We try to, we, everything is on us. We shoulder it. Or we run and we try to escape. How many times do you try to bear the burden on yourself and you try to control the outcome with Jesus not even being part of the picture? You've done all those things and you've never prayed. Or how many times have you escaped to different substances, to different activities. It's a word for somebody in the room today. There's a substance that you're running to that you need to stop. You need to turn to Jesus instead. How many times do we do that, church? The reality is we need to run to Jesus every time, all day, every day. And it's only there that we find the true relief that we need the true hope that we need. He is our greatest hope, amen? When, when your finances are a point of trial, when your housing is a point of trial, when your employment is a point of trial, when your relationships are broken and they're causing you stress, when the storms hit in the natural world, what happens? In whom is your faith? In what is your faith? Run to Jesus. When, when the spiritual attacks come and the lies are coming and the accusations come and the doubts come, when, when they rage, do you know that the devil doesn't usually attack you by presenting you with his scary figure in the mirror or something, but he comes at you with lies and accusations and doubts? When those things hit, what happens? In whom is your faith? You see, Jesus is on display here as the one who is greater than everything, both natural and supernatural, both physical and spiritual. And when everything else changes and fails in your life, guess what? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes, and he will never fail. Amen? That's your God. Don't be driven by fear. Fear, can, fear is, is natural and normal, and it can drive you in one of two directions. It can consume you, and you can stay in it. Or it can press you to Jesus where you find true wisdom. Amen? It's only in Christ that we find true wisdom. And so what I believe is happening here in this text today is as we get to this final question, you and I are faced with this, this dynamic where we have to recognize, are we either going to choose fear or are we going to choose faith? And the text is calling you today 
Exchange your fear for your faith in Jesus. Exchange your fear for your faith in Jesus. It is only through his power, through his strength, that you are able to do anything, to be able to resist the enemy, and he, can, and he must flee, right? It is only when you are trusting in the Lord that he will provide for your every need, right? You see, as we exchange our fear for faith in Jesus, as we turn to him, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what exactly does faith in Jesus look like? Faith in Jesus, trust in his presence. That no matter what happens, he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. Faith in Jesus, trust in his promises, that he will carry you through to that promised land, and one day he will restore you fully. Sometimes he gives you glimpses of that here, and he heals now, and he restores here now, and he always walks with us and is our strength through every storm. But one day, church, no more sorrow, no more tears, everything will be made new. Amen? And that's his promise. You can trust in his promise. Faith trusts in his presence and his promises. Faith trusts, faith in Jesus trusts in his character. You need to know he's good. How many times when we go through a trial do you and I look at Jesus and say what the disciples said? Do you even care? Come on, God, I thought you loved me. You can trust in his character. He is good. Amen? Amen. If we can just get to a place of exchanging our fear for faith, we would realize that Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything, and we would experience the flourishing. Let me close with this story. If you want to experience flourishing in your life, I think this story might encourage you. I grew up on the mission field in West Africa, and, uh, and so my parents were missionaries, so they would come back to the United States every once in a while, and, uh, and we would go to these conferences, or we would go around kind of raising support. And, uh, and one time we came back, and, and the denomination we were a part of said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and, 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 and bring them down to Florida, and we're going we're gonna to get them tickets so that they can go to one of those amusement parks, and they can enjoy it. It's all free for the family. And so I, I got there. I'd never really been to a place like that. I didn't know much about it. In fact, I, all these roller coasters that were going everywhere, never been on a roller coaster. And, uh, and so I'm making friends, right? I'm making new friends, and all my friends want to go on roller coasters. But I've never been on one, and I'm terrified, right? I'm afraid, but I, I want my friends to like me. I want them to be impressed by me, right? So they're like, oh, all right, let's go. we got to go on this roller coaster and that roller coaster. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah, let's go, let's go. But inside, I am so nervous the whole time. And so we get in line, right? And you guys know what happens in a music park when you're in line for the roller coaster? You hear the roller coaster go flying by. You're watching it come by. And so I'm getting a visual over and over and over of this scary thing that I'm petrified of, right? And I'm hearing the screams, and I'm watching the legs dangle. I got a picture up here of the Batman ride over at Six Flags. Give you an idea of the type of ride I was seeing come by me. And so we're getting in line. We're getting closer and closer. And all of a sudden, it's our turn. And wouldn't you know it, but by God's providence, I'm in the first row of the roller coaster. God's messing with me at this point, right? So I'm in the first row of the roller coaster, and the roller coaster starts going up, click, 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 and my friend's next to me, he goes, John, this is going to be awesome, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be the best. It's going to be awesome. And so we get up to the top when he's not looking. You know what I do? Grab hold of the rail, close my eyes. And we just go take off. My eyes are wedged shut the whole time, and I'm gr death grip, right, on the rail. And we're flying around, and people are screaming, yelling, whatever, and I don't know much about roller coasters, right? So as we get to the end, it's starting to slow down. But I'm not sure if we're just going to take another turn, another spin. So my eyes aren't even open yet. And he looks over, my friend looks over to me. He goes, John, wasn't that amazing? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's the best. <laughs> 
and he goes, John, are your eyes shut? And I was like, oh, uh, no, I, bug. I got a bug in my eye. <laughs> I was so scared of that roller coaster, I could never enjoy that ride. Church, you know that this, this is the world we live in. It's a ride. There are ups and downs with Jesus or without Jesus. There are ups and downs, right? But as I got older, I started to trust that machine, and I started to have a whole lot of fun on roller coasters. Now I love going on roller coasters. Why? Because I trusted that it would get me through, that it would get me to my destination. You and I, if we could just trust Jesus that he would carry us through, we would actually experience joy through the journey. Amen? Through the nights and through the days, we could find joy. We could find flourishing if we could just trust Jesus that he would get us through. Amen? Don't let fear grab hold of you. Exchange it for faith in Jesus and find that complete trust is the pathway to joy. What are the storms and the fears and the worries in your life? Exchange your fear for faith in in the person of Christ. Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. Let's take a moment to pray as the band comes up. Father, (laughs) Lord, you know us way better than we know us. You know every single bump and bruise that we have had. God, you know every single moment of attack that we have experienced. And so, God, we don't need to come to you and try to explain that. But we just want to say thank you today for Jesus. Thank you for the great gift of Jesus, that we don't have to go about it alone. And not only do we, that we don't have to go about it alone, but, God, we can find strength, his strength throughout the journey. I pray today, God, that as we respond to this message, Lord, that you would help all of us today to exchange our fear for faith and to trust in Jesus, the Son of God. I pray all this in his name. Amen.